Rhino Horn is said to have various uh, medicinal properties, which unfortunately is an absolute fallacy. Rhino Horn is keratin, which is the same material as your as your fingernails or your hair. You're listening to the Rotary Winger Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. In each episode, we explore the world of helicopters with the people that fly them and support them. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You'll also find the iTunes link there so that you can subscribe to the show. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Episode 6 of the Rotary Wing Show takes us to South Africa, where we catch up with and learn about helicopter operations in support of rhinos and rhino protection and anti-poaching. So that is coming up shortly. Now, this week we had a pizza and theory night where we invited anyone that was interested and our students into the flying school for an evening. And as the name implies, we ate pizza and talked about a whole bunch of things related to helicopter flying. So things like types of airspaces, radio requirements, human factors, aircraft tech, vector diagrams, and aerodye. And it's pretty crazy how much stuff we pick up along the way into getting our license and then afterwards in our actual operations. It was just a really good chance and a really good night of hangar talk. And so it's conversations that all of us have with other air crew or engineers on site or in a hangar somewhere that helps pass on those lessons that others have picked up in their career. In a small way, that's what I'm trying to do with this show too is to capture some of these chats so that you and I can learn a little bit about flying in places or on types of operations that we wouldn't normally have access to. If you are enjoying the shows and the interviews, then it would be a huge help to me if you can please leave a five-star review on iTunes. So to do that, you can go to rotarywingshow.com forward slash iTunes and look for the ratings and reviews tab. And if you're listening on Android, then you might find Stitcher easier, in which case you can go via rotarywingshow.com forward slash Stitcher. Now, folks, the reason is that uh, positive reviews, and hopefully you do like the show, that the positive reviews help other folks to find the podcasts on either iTunes or Stitches, and we get to spread the word. Now, very quickly, this episode is sponsored by trainmorepilots.com where you can download some free resources to market your aviation company, and especially if you're involved in the training side of things. If you work for a company that might be interested in sponsoring the show, then please get in touch via feedback at rotarywingshow.com. Okay, so imagine going up against armed poachers backed by international crime syndicates and using a Robinson R44 to do it. Well, that's what Etienne Gerber and his fellow pilots at the Zululand Anti-Poaching Wing do. If that sounds like a tough and risky job, then yeah, I'd be the first to, to agree. It also sounds really personally rewarding for the folks involved. So let's hear some more about that. So welcome to the show. I've got uh, Eddie and Gerber on the uh, line with me here. So Eddie, thank you for taking the time out and chatting about uh, what you're doing there in uh, South Africa. No, thank you very much, Mick. 
All right. So, Eddie, can you just describe your role and what you're doing there? And then we'll get into a bit of uh, the organization and things like that. But yeah, if you can open it up and, and kind of, yeah, what's your position title and, and what's your role there? No, sure thing, Mick. My, my position is that of, of chief pilot and as a base manager for the Zululand anti-poaching wing in South Africa. So let's let's walk through how you got into flying and how you actually ended up in that position. Yeah, cool. So, because uh, it's obviously not something you wake up one day and decide, okay, that's the job I'm going for. So I imagine there was a bit of a road to get there. Yeah, like all of us, we've we've got our, our stories to tell. Um, I was one of those kids growing up who'd always run outside and look up if uh, an aircraft or a helicopter flew over. So it's been a lifelong fascination. Towards the end of my high school career, I tried to join the South African Air Force as well as uh, the airlines. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't get in there. Um, I ended up doing initially my fixed wing PPL in uh, 2001 and then progressed on to fixed wing CPL in 2003. Um, then in 2012, I actually had a fantastic break in that I managed to convert onto helicopters uh, through to CPL as well. So I'm, I'm dual rated in both uh, helicopter and fixed wing. So you were, you're working as a commercial fixed wing pilot in that time in between. That is that is correct. Yes, I work for for a small uh, mission organisation and charter company based up here in the northern uh, northern part of the KwaZulu Natal province. And at that time, we were doing medical flights, uh, Kazavex, and mission outreach work out here in the in the rural area of of northern Zululand. But uh, always wanted to fly helicopters and. Uh, ended up this uh, right up my alley, so I'm very, very fortunate. Okay, let's talk about um, the Zapwing then, because online it's the, uh, the, the shortened word you guys are using. So the, the full title, yeah. again, was the Zululand Air Patrol? It's the Zululand Anti-Poaching Wing, and um, we're involved in Rhino Anti-Poaching, which is our main, our main focus. And uh, it's, uh, Zapwing is essentially it's a, it's a support structure to state and private conservation, and it's an integral part of our province's police uh, JOCCOM, which is the Joint Operations Committee. Now, that JOCCOM is a collaboration between the South African Police Service and the KZN. KZN is the abbreviation for our province, which is the KwaZulu-Natal. So it's a, it's a, a joint committee between the police service and the KZN Wildlife which is our state's uh, or provincial uh, conservation entity. So Zapwing is actually uh, logged and written into a police structure as well. So that's, that's pretty neat in that uh, we get to, to do various interesting work. So it's a standalone organization, though. So you turn up, you're employed by Zapwing, and it, it sort of it's, runs its, it's own a bit show. Of a, it's a bit of a complex thing without getting too involved. Uh, Zapwing is a project of an umbrella company called Project Rhino KZN. Uh, project Rhino KZN is an affiliation of both state and private conservation entities. I, in my personal capacity, am employed by one of those entities, uh, an NGO called the African Conservation Trust. Um, like I said, it gets a bit complicated in the in the in the integral parts of it, but essentially, Zapwing is a part of Project Rhino KZN, and um, we function as a as a unit. It is unique in that it's it's a collaboration between states uh, and private conservation. How long has that been a standing organisation there? We established in uh, 2012, and um, yeah, it's, uh, like I said, it was born out of out of Project uh, Rhino KZN, identifying the need to address this rhino rhino poaching crisis in our in our province. 
We'll get into like how much of a crisis is and how much of a problem it is. On the flying side, are you guys operating as a um, you know air work, a commercial operation? Do you have your own AOC? How does that side of things work? Sure. Mick, because we, our air wing consists of both fixed wing and helicopter work, uh, this, this interview obviously is focusing more on the helicopter side. So un- unless indicated otherwise, I'll be, I'll be speaking about the helicopter side. And on the helicopters, we do operate under, under an AOC. So that is classified as, as commercial, uh, commercial work. Okay. You've mentioned rhinos a few times. Uh, mm. the, the organization, like, is it is rhinos the, the crisis at the moment or is it a, a general anti-poaching thing? Because often you hear about, you know, elephants and uh, other animals like that. Or is it particularly focused around the, the rhino um, herds or population at the moment? Sure. Our main, our main focus is, is predominantly on, on the rhino. Um, having said that, uh, we have obviously picked up that elephants are becoming an issue as well. I know that quite recently, uh, Kruger National Park, which is just to the north of us in our neighboring province, obviously they have had a few losses. We haven't really seen elephant uh, poaching happening in, in our province yet, but unfortunately we, we know that it's a, a matter of time before we'll see that. But until that time, our focus will be mainly mainly on the rhino rhino issue. What are some of the factors behind it? Like, why is rhino poaching, why is it done, first of all, and, and what are sure. the sort of factors driving the demand for it? Well, Mick, it's, it's a sad reality that it's, it's a belief structure uh, that started or is, is, is mainly driven from the east and that a rhino horn is said to have various uh, medicinal properties, which unfortunately is an absolute fallacy. Rhino horn is keratin, which is the same material as your, as your fingernails or your hair. It actually has no medicinal or scientific value whatsoever. It is just a belief structure. And what has happened is the demand for it has driven the cost up or the price, the value of rhino horn um, up to astronomical levels. So the incentive behind it, behind the poaching itself, is purely financial. We've received some frightening stats from our informer networks that your water carrier, which is essentially the guy who just tags along and makes sure that the poacher or the hunter is fed and watered, per hunt, he gets 80,000 rand which is quite a sum of money just to tag along. The, the actual, the, the guy who's pulling the trigger, the poacher, gets 200,000 rand for a hunt. The courier who delivers the horn to the middleman, he gets up to 190,000 rand per kilogram of horn. Now, if you factor in the fact that a rhino horn, a combination of your, of your two horns, because a rhino's got an anterior or the front horn and then the posterior or the rear horn, Combination of those two is up to nine kilograms of horn per animal, and at a price of two hundred and fifty thousand rand per kgs, you you can quickly do the figures and and calculate that it's a, a large sum of money um, that these guys are after. And it's 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 like I said, it boils down to a financial incentive. And what's the average like annual wage as far as rand go as a comparison? Uh, in South Africa, I know it vary hugely. But. No, for sure. See, in, in our area, we just in terms of of where we are geographically, if one had to look at the map of South Africa, we're on the on the far eastern coastline, and right up in the north. So we're just south of of the Mozambican border, um, in the area known as Zululand, and our area has got a very high unemployment rate, figures of up to eighty percent unemployment in our district. 
So that combined with very low low annual wages um, is huge levels of of poverty in our in our immediate areas, and then Mozambique as well, which you know has been racked by by civil unrest. Uh, there's huge unemployment and issues there. So it's unfortunately a, a realistic fact that we have to deal with that there there's essentially an endless supply of people willing to put their lives on the line to make uh, a few a few dollars or a few rand in order to to try and survive unfortunately it does bring them into uh, into conflict with with the law and are they just individual random people going or is this like an organized crime with uh, trained people and syndicates and and networks to to move the material out or uh, uh, what sort of organization uh, these, is it? these guys are highly organized it is definitely a syndicated crime they are well connected uh, via technology and by that I mean through through cell phones through social media platforms even, as well as uh, sympathetic communities. I mean, we've just discussed the unemployment issue. These guys are often portrayed as being saviors of a community and that they bring vast sums of money into an area. Um, so it is unfortunate that often there's lots of collusion involved with the, with the neighboring communities as well. But these guys are very, very highly trained, highly organized. A lot of them are Mozambican nationals, and uh, some of the guys that have been picked up have either been previous or even active members of the of the Mozambican military. So they are well versed in, in the skills of, of anti-tracking, of uh, disguise, etc., of camouflage. So these are highly trained guys that we are dealing with. All right. So a very complex sort of economic and social and, and, and many things on the way there. So, all right, well, let's, let's move back to the flying side then. Now that we've got a bit of a, a background about what you guys uh, are dealing with. So as you said, if you look at a map of South Africa, you guys are over on the on the right hand side, and correct. You're basically, you know, I'm guessing that's why you're based where you are at the airfield. Is you're pretty much surrounded by a network of not only national parks, I guess, which would be um, you know government parks, but a whole heap of private reserves. Is that about right? That's correct. Our operational base is is in the small town of Shushui. You can try and pronounce that later on. And we are right in the heart of what we call our operational area, which extends, like I said earlier, from the Mozambican border working south. And we're in the center in the center of our area. And we've got a rough radius of about 150 kilometers uh, that we cover from, from that center point. All right, it's about an hour and a half um, flying time in the 44. Correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah talk about some of the challenges, just again, back to that area, I guess it comes back to the unemployment and, and some of those things. But just purely operating the area, one of the YouTube videos, you talk about the fact that telephone wires get uh, stolen all the time. Uh, mm. And so you're quite glad to be able to move over to the internet and VoIP over IP for phones. What other challenges are there just purely in the environment <laughs> and operating in uh, in Africa and, and operating out of that airfield? No, sure, Mick. And this is something that a lot of people don't don't consider. Even even local people who live in, in our major, major city centers don't necessarily get exposed to these type of challenges. One of them is is just the isolation of where we're at. For example, our closest point where we collect our our fuel, we obviously run on Avgas, is is the airport that's uh, over a hundred kilometres away. Which means we need to drive a, a pickup truck with a two thousand litre uh, Avgas bowser. It's more than an hour and a half one way just to get to the airport and collect uh, two thousand litres at a time. The the rate that we're running operations, it means at least once a month. A trip down uh, to to collect that, and for anybody who's ever driven in rural Africa, will appreciate the the inherent risk that's involved in uh, just driving on our on our roads. I'd much rather be in the air 
than uh, than driving. Other factors would be, like you've mentioned, is is, uh, is service delivery, things like uh, reliable uh, communications, disruption to our power supplies, to water supplies. All of these things affect how we how we uh, get to operate at the end of the day. So a lot of those things you have your own local backup. So you'd have generators. Um, Correct. We've gen- got, so we've water, got standby storage. generators. We've got underground. Uh, we've got two twenty thousand liter underground water storage. Uh, capacity. We've got a system whereby we can isolate ourselves completely off the grid uh, and operate uh, independently. And that's just born out of out of necessity. Now, we've mentioned R44s, and that's just because I've been reading up and, and chatting to you beforehand. Mm-hmm. But can you run us through, and the fixed-wing fo- side of things is too, so what sort of aircraft, uh, what's the fleet you guys are operating? Sure thing. Like like you mentioned, we operate two R44s. They, they're Raven 2s. And then we also have two uh, fixed-wing aircraft. They are light sport aircraft. One is a it's called a Cheetah. It's produced here in in South Africa in Johannesburg. And another one is a Bathawk, which is a, a modification of the New Zealand Bantam aircraft. And uh, both the fixed wings run uh, predominantly on on MoGas, a normal 95 unleaded fuel. So that makes us uh, a lot more flexible in terms of how we can operate with them. But the 44s are, are really the mainstay of, of operation at this stage, and uh, they do most of the of, of the hard work. Are they pretty stock standard, or have you got them in a particular configuration? Have you got mission equipment on them? Unfortunately, at this stage, they are completely stock, stock standard. Um, nothing, nothing special. Uh, most of the time, the only difference is we will operate doors off most of the time. That just assists with um, either ingress or egress in out the machine, um, and also for from operational point of view, for an observer or, or for a spotter, it's obviously a lot easier to be hanging uh, outside the door frame looking down than what it is trying to to look through a window. But other than that, other than taking the doors off, uh, we pretty much stock standard. And they set up for knife flying? Unfortunately not. Uh, through our legislation locally, we're restricted to day flying by VMC only. So that, that is, a, is a concern for us. If we want to go night flying, we'd have to essentially be be an IF operation. Uh, being rural Zululand, there is um, ambient light is a problem. We're a black hole environment, so discernible horizon, uh, not much of it. Uh, so we'd we'd essentially be an IF operation if we had to had to go night flying. I'm guessing the answer is going to come back to cost and things like that, but it must <laughs> be you know it'd be. I'm sure it'd be nice for you guys to have um, night vision goggles and be able to operate at night to sort of extend mm. your operations that way. But uh, I, I'm guessing, is it a legislation thing or is it just purely a cost thing? It's a combination of both, but I would say mostly a cost thing. I know that the, there is a local uh, operator who's now started operating uh, night ops on NVGs. And so that would definitely, that would open up a whole new world for us. Make most of our, our actual shooting operations where, where poachers come in and actually uh, shoot animals are, are conducted at last light and uh, mostly full moon conditions, which allows them obviously to walk around the bush without too many uh, visible lights. So that is that is something we would love to be able to do is, is, is start conducting uh, night ops. And without digress, uh, digressing too much, that's just one of the aspects we've seen and the change of, of their behavior, of the poachers' behavior since the implementation of the aircraft, and that we've definitely seen a, a trend um, of the of the poachers starting to operate more after dark than before because uh, they've cottoned on to the fact that uh, the, the aircraft don't operate at night. All right. 
And the other pilots there who are, are working with you, Eddie Ann, so you obviously mm. were a local South African uh, background and, and then sort of moved into that role. Uh, are the other pilots there pretty similar background to yourself? Pretty much. Um, my one colleague, we, we are three three helicopter pilots. All of us are, have got civilian backgrounds and none of us are, are police or, or law enforcement backgrounds. One is, is, a, is a South African from, from our province as well. And the other is initially he was a, a Dutch uh, citizen, but he's been in, in, in Africa for most of his life. And he comes from a, from a conservation background as well. So all of us kind of fit into, into the profile of what is needed to, to conduct these missions. And what sort of hours would the yourself and the and the other guys have um, mm. before they start working there? No, sure. Um, we are relatively low time pilots. Uh, we vary between four hundred and just over a thousand hours total time. Okay, and in Zapwing itself, do you have other aircrew as far as spotters or rangers, or mm. they sort of come and go? We generally use the let's, for example, say if we're going out to to let's say Game Reserve X. We would then pick up a representative uh, from that park and and fly with one of their rangers or their anti-poaching unit or APU officer. So we do work very closely with the various reserves, their management and their law enforcement divisions as well. So we generally end up having two or three representatives from each reserve that we that we work with. So we, we are constantly working with the same contingent of, of people which does allow us to get to know each other, get familiar with each other, how we operate. And that does uh, lead to more streamlined operations as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of it comes down to relationships with, you know, the person on the other end of the uh, the line and uh, mm. and just working with people. Uh, EDM, when folks join Zapwing, and I imagine it's not a massive turnover, and let me know, yeah, give me an idea of how much sort of turnover there is. But are you big enough to we actually have some kind of like training program or is a lot of it just, you know, jump in the left-hand seat or uh, sort of learn as you go. No, we we try we try and make it as as professional as possible. Um, what we have a quite intensive orientation uh, process uh, when we do get a new guy in. That is more in terms of geographical orientation and getting to know getting to know the area. Uh, if you bear in mind that we covered twenty five different uh, reserves over an area of a, just over half a million hectares, that's quite a vast area to get to know. So we, we're involved in, like I said, intensive orientation, and that includes uh, low-level operations. That's predominantly where we operate. So anything below 500 foot, that's, uh, that's where you'll find us. So we're very aware of, of low-level ops, uh, all the inherent dangers uh, operating inside the dead man's curve and trying to, trying to mitigate all the risks involved. Um, because none of us are instructor-rated, we can't conduct official uh, training, but we do definitely do company and line training uh, during our during our day to day work, just to keep ourselves uh, fresh and and current. And is it much turnover? Like the the current crew, how long have you guys been together? No, absolutely. Uh, we we pride ourselves on the fact that we retain our pilots. Um, we've got quite a strict selection process in order to to get in into the organisation, and we then retain retain our pilots because. What we do is not a job. It's it's a lifestyle. I almost want to say it's a calling. It is. It's a tough environment, but it's also a very gratifying type of work to be to be involved in. So, in the last since 2012, we've only had one helicopter pilot leave us in that in that entire uh, process. And uh, by the signs of things as going now, we'll probably retain our current crew 
for at least the next couple of years as well. Yeah, and I didn't sort of talk about this beforehand, but I think it's a big thing too. Like uh, most of us are in a job where we, you know, we love flying, we love uh, flying helicopters, and, and we're making some kind of difference because someone's willing to, to foot the bill for the for the flying. But mm. the, the work you're doing is is kind of at the end of the day, you know, they must be quite rewarding. That is, it's it's highly highly rewarding. Um, I mean, for us, a big thing is is to hear at the end of the day just appreciation from from the field rangers and the anti poaching staff on the ground. Um, when we've conducted some operations and just them expressing their gratitude because to be honest, although we often are perceived to be the ones in the limelight, it is, it's the guys on the ground, the guys out in the field who are doing the real hard work, the guys out on extended patrols, clandestine patrols, they are the ones who have to sleep in the, in the wet and in the cold. We get to go home each night. So they're the ones who actually deserve most of the credit. Yeah, very much so. I think that's very true for a lot of helicopter ops. We uh, <laughs> swoop in at the last minute and pick up all the uh, the kudos. Uh, yeah. What about the the other hardworking folks, uh, the engineers? Have you got any engineers on staff, mm. or are they? Because the two forty fours are their contract delivered. You don't actually own them that is internally. Correct. That is correct. Uh, just to talk about those contracts, they are they are based with us through the local, the provincial conservation entity called Kaysden and Wildlife. Uh, they're a state uh, state operation, and um, they are here on on contracts supplied through the provincial treasury through money made uh, available through provincial treasury, and uh, part of the contract obviously includes the maintenance etc. And um, for the engineers, we've got uh, the closest AMO is based about 110 kilometres away from us by road, about 20 25 minutes flying time. Um, so we we use them to conduct all our all our maintenance, and they they're very good guys, I must say. What happens when you you know break down out in the in the middle of the park somewhere? <laughs> um, so far, we've had very few occurrences like that. Uh, I must credit the the engineering or the AMO; they are very very quick to respond. They would either drive out themselves, or we would dispatch the second helicopter to go pick up the engineer and whatever tooling and equipment is required. And generally. Our turnaround time is, uh, of AOG is, is a couple of hours and the machine is, is back up and running. Is it a bit of a problem being stuck out in the middle of the park, one for the wildlife, but then obviously the reason you're out in the middle of the park is because you're, you're doing anti-poaching ops. Mm. Uh, what's the sort of risk like? Uh, it's, there, there is definitely an element of, of risk and uh, uh, the pilot obviously will, will not go walk about unnecessarily. He'll remain with, with the aircraft and uh, I think what you're alluding to is whether whether we are armed and and whether we carry any form of protection. Um, some of us are are armed. Uh, I I do carry, and some of my colleagues do carry uh, sidearms just for personal pr- protection. And those of us who are not carrying at the moment, they are busy with their with their applications for for firearms. And uh, so that's just a question of time before before all our guys will actually be be armed and uh, be able to defend themselves if if the need arrives. Because, yeah, you got both things going on. you got uh, people and uh, wildlife. Because I know Northern Australia, mm. you know, they quite often you know, carry a rifle or something or other for uh, crocodiles. But <laughs> you guys have got kind of all kinds of things over there that want to eat you. Yeah, we've got, we've got the big five. So one's got to always be, be aware of that. And um, that's definitely, I'd say, the large portion of the motivation behind uh, making sure that, that you, you can take care of yourself out in the bush. And obviously, we, we carry MREs. Um, 
adequate supply of water, et cetera, just in terms of, of being able to survive. Sure. What's the flying like? Um, you know, what, what's the average weather? Uh, you know, is it, mm. do you, has lots of fires around? Yeah, we, uh, KZN, KwaZulu-Natal, uh, we've got interesting weather patterns. Some days we can have four seasons in one day. Uh, generally in winter, our, our flying conditions are, are the best. We've got cool days, uh, very stable weather patterns, great visibility. Uh, and obviously with that, our low density altitudes, great for, for helicopter performance. Uh, going into, into the period that we are in now, during August, is our windy period. Uh, we get uh, winds, you know, for three, four days, it can be blowing 30, 35 knots uh, constantly. So that's that can be quite challenging. And then summer, obviously, we've got uh, a very high temperatures, mid to to uh, well, mid 30s up to high 40s sometimes with uh, humidities up to about 90, 95% at times, which really saps not only your energy, but that of the helicopter as well. So... Fly, uh, mass imbalance very critical in in calculating a helicopter's performance uh, when we when we do go out there. I must admit, Eddie, when I, when I'm thinking of game parks, I kind of have this picture of big flat areas. Um, mm. it, it, what's the train like? What sort of altitudes are you at? Is is there hills and mountains, or is it pretty well flat? Well, in 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 our part of the province in the east, it's relatively flat. So most most of the terrain is between 200 and 500 foot above sea level. Um, so density altitude, most of the time, not too much of a problem there. But uh, as we progress further west and inland, we do have uh, quite a few ridges. We've got the Lobombo Mountains, which run um, north-south. And uh, through that, with our predominant winds being northeasterly, we get quite a amount of, of rotor coming off the top of the hills there. So especially now in August, uh, when we have to fly low level through valleys and, and over ridges, it, it can be quite uh, quite a challenge. And one's always got to just watch where you are and, and always have a have a strategy in place for, for what you're getting up to. How high are those uh, mountains? Those peaks are about two to two and a half thousand foot above above sea level. So again, they're not they're not very high. But uh, in summer we can uh, get up to about five thousand foot density altitude and the reason I'm harping on about density altitude is uh, with a 44, when we're out on what we call operations or, or reactions, that's when we're actually chasing uh, chasing the poachers. Often we're we're engaged not only with the with a local anti-poaching unit, but sometimes with our police tactical response team, with some of the tracker units, etc. These these are big boys, and they and they're carrying their their webbing, they're carrying rifles, etc. So in get. Uh, two guys in your helicopter in excess of 100 kilograms each. And if you're anywhere near half tanks or above, uh, you're going to start running into, into power loss issues there. So that's, that's, that's why I keep on uh, referring back to the NZ altitude, just because I've been there and uh, it makes one quite nervous when, you, when you're in that, in that area. Yeah, I mean, the 44 is not, uh, not limitless power, that's for sure. <laughs> Uh, what about the airspace, Eddie? You know, again, I'm guessing it's uncontrolled over the parks and things like that, or is it restricted areas? How does that work? We're very fortunate uh, from a pilot's point of view in that all our airspace that in, in our operational area is all uncontrolled, uh, so we're pretty much free to do whatever we need. Um, the negative aspect of that is obviously uh, anybody can can do what what they would like to. So that does it, that does create a potential for guys using helicopters as well to actually conduct poaching operations. We've had one or two encounters of that, 
Um, so with a lack of, of radar, uh, obviously we can't see where these guys are or, or, who, or who they are. And that does sometimes create a bit of an issue. The only restriction as far as airspace is concerned is, is the legal legislation which states that there's a height restriction over uh, con, uh, proclaimed parks. And that, uh, that's 1,500 foot uh, above ground. Obviously, in our operation, we're exempt of that and we get to operate uh, wherever the mission requires us to be. Is many other aircraft there? Is tourism a big thing or is it just local, uh, I guess, uh, RPT or, or getting around the place? Is it, how much other air traffic is there? Mick, our area is, is highly dependent on, on ecotourism. And uh, with that, we have quite a few uh, charter companies in the area flying uh, guests in and out of some of the, the more luxurious resorts. So there's a fair amount of, of air traffic, not that it's congested at all, but uh, we are always monitoring our low-level frequency. And uh, we've, got, we've got good comms with the guys around. And uh, they generally know who we are and what we're up against. And uh, the, from, the, from, the, from the aviation community, they've been very supportive and, and even assisted in some cases, which is, which is nice. Yeah, and, and an area like that where you're sort of all looking out for each other too because it's, it's in everyone's best interest. Absolutely. What sort of maps are you using? Is, is it uh, <clears throat> just sort of topographical maps? Uh, do you have park maps? Yeah, it's, it's for, for our, our basic navigation where we generally use the normal topographical maps. But like you said, once we start operating inside a particular reserve, we like to have a, have a highly detailed map of that reserve which uh, outlines you know, the infrastructure, the road networks, the local names. Because bear in mind, uh, being in rural Zululand, um, the local language Zulu is, is spoken by almost everybody. And most of these places are referred to in their local Zulu names. Um, so it's, it's good to, to have that type of map that reflects those, those names, which you're not going to find on your, on your standard government issue topographical maps. Yeah, and is that a bit of a challenge, the language? Or is it you've been exposed to it most of your life, or how's it work? Um, I'm, I'm fortunate in that I can, I can speak, speak the language. Um, I grew up very privileged in that my father is a long-serving uh, game ranger with Kazan and Wildlife. So I actually grew up in the in number of the game reserves that we are currently patrolling and, and flying over. Um, and with that, many of my friends growing up were Zulu, so I've been very fortunate in in learning it uh, as as one of my languages. So to me, it's not not a problem. But to those who can't speak it, obviously, that creates a bit of a challenge. Yeah. All right. So you've really gone back to your roots, then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. At the end, let's talk about your average day. As far as mm. you, know, you wake up, do you live at the at the field itself, or are you living somewhere else and you drive to work? Uh, what's the basing arrangement? No, sure. the 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 town of Lishui is very, very small. The town where we are based at. Um, I live on the opposite side of Lishui town, and uh, if I'm in a rush, I can drive from my house to the hangar in less than a minute. So, very, <laughs> okay. very, very close by. One of our other pilots is actually living uh, on site, so he is uh, literally fifty meters away from the helicopter, twenty four seven. So our reaction time is very good in that sense. So we wake up in the morning and we're pretty much at work already. And is it nine to five job? Is it uh, you know a couple of days on, a couple of days we, off? Yeah, we 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 need to be available from sunrise until sunset because obviously those are our, our requirements or restrictions when it comes to to fly tops. Um, like I said earlier, we've got three helicopter pilots and two helicopters. 
So, so we've got a, a rostering and, and a rotation system to make sure that uh, we got we get our time off as well. Um, so we try and comply with uh, flight and duty limitations. So we'll we'll take a day off uh, here and there in order just to make sure that we are are rested and and compliant with with those requirements as well. And do you have a, a program so that you know two weeks out you know you'll be doing a certain park, you'll be doing a patrol. How's that sort of working against the anti-poaching ops where you might be seeing as a reaction force? Is it a fairly fluid operation? Mm. We we do have we do have a have a have a schedule, although it would appear to be uh, from from the outside it would appear to be random. There's there's no there's no pattern to it, and that's done specifically in order not to create a pattern which can then be anticipated by by poacher activity. How that schedule is is drawn up is directly between the pilots and the various landowners, uh, or uh, management or park rep- representatives, and the the pilot and that person would know what the schedule is. But that schedule is not open for everybody's uh, eyes to see, obviously. And then it is a very fluid system in that it can change at the drop of a hat. A patrol can immediately transition into a reaction or into an operation. So it is a very fluid and very dynamic setup. We wait. Yeah, we'll steer around that because obviously there's certain OPSEC things that you guys are doing that uh, we don't really want to talk about. Um, but is there, well, let's go back to that where we talked about before, you know, if you got stuck in the park, that sort of personal risk. Mm. You know, talking the, the financial figures you were talking about, the anti-poaching organisations and the personnel doing it wouldn't be necessarily the, the favourite people for for some folks involved. So what kind of personal risk are you guys at? Yeah, look, like any law enforcement operation, there, there's there's a degree of risk involved. Yeah, like like I've said, we we, we do try and, and uh, avoid exposing ourselves to those risk areas as much as what we can. However, that obviously is not always the case. So the guys that, that we work with, the, the anti-poaching and the law enforcement guys, they obviously uh, are armed and protected accordingly. We as pilots, we've also been issued with uh, bulletproof vests, uh, which we are encouraged to to wear during during flights and operations as well. Um, we're in constant uh, communication with each other as well. As as a pilot group, we use a uh, a cell phone application whereby we're we're texting each other our movements the whole time, just so we know who's where and and when we can expect each other back back at base as well. Just for a, a flight following purpose, we we are on the point of equipping equipping the helicopters with the spider tracks GPS tracking as well, uh, just for flight following as well to be able to see uh, where all our guys are. So you wouldn't have HF on the on the forty fours at all. Then? Unfortunately, no, not at all, not at all. In our areas is relatively small. Uh, line of sight is not too bad. We we do have a base station here at our at our upstream. And uh, from that VHF base station, we can actually pick up majority of our areas. Um, obviously, if we do go into into valleys and and ravines, then then that uh, becomes an becomes an issue. Um, also, with with some of the terrain, we we don't have cell phone coverage in those in those deep valleys. Uh, so there are areas where where there are no comms. Um, hence, why the why the why the satellite tracking will, will be a huge advantage to us. And if if things really go pear shaped, we do carry uh, personal locator beacons upon our persons, um, in, in a last ditch effort to try and locate where where our pilots are at. Yeah, there's a couple of things to consider there. And what about the so also the fixed wing side? We haven't talked about it a bit, but the rotary wing pilots. Will you fly fixed wing at all, or you're purely there just for the for the rotary wing? 
No, I, I do. I do a combination of both uh, fixed wing and and rotor. So you're pretty busy. Then what, what sort of flying rates are you guys doing? <laughs> the the machines have got an allocated budget uh, of 30, 35 hours per machine per month, which is hardly enough for for what we need. And that's that restriction is purely due to due to budget restraints. Um, we could do with with double that that amount of hours per month. Uh, in the past, just to give you an idea, we've we've had a ratio of about seven of that thirty five uh, thirty five hours per month per machine. But seventy percent would be spent on on patrol and surveillance flights, and thirty percent on reactions and, and operations. In the last six months, we've seen an inversion of that, whereby we're now flying up to seventy eighty percent at times reactions, and only thirty or twenty percent on on patrols. This is because there's a, there's a definite increase in escalation and in, in poaching occurring, and uh, with that we we are becoming more busy, and uh, so that uh, thirty five hours a month is uh, not quite enough. So how busy? Like when you're talking busy, uh, like how often would someone be arrested, or how often would you try and actually be tipped off and and have a a, oh, sure. a chase? Or, or how does that work? Like when a when a call out happens. Uh, what's the scenario? Is there, there's people already mm. on the ground, or are you moving people in there? Or are you acting as a, a like a stopgap? It's it's highly dynamic, and it and it depends on the on the scenario. Uh, to answer the first part of your question, we averaging about one reaction per day, so it'd be one one contact, if you like, uh, per day that that we are reacting to. Um, the sequence of events would be we would get a, a phone call. Now, just to put this in context, we essentially operate uh, three different types of flying. We classify them as patrol or surveillance flying. Uh, then the second category would be our, our reaction flying, which is what we can discuss now. And then the third is our operations, which is involved with our police force and uh, in identifying and uh, approaching known suspects and known targets. Now, on the on the reaction that in turn depends on one of two things and how we classify it. One could be your typical reactive flight. In other words, shots fired, um, guys in the field have picked up tracks or spur of suspects and we react to that. That is a very reactive flight and that's not our favorite type because nine out of 10 times uh, the perpetrators would have already exited the, the, the area by the time we can get there. Uh, what we prefer is to have a more proactive approach that is all information driven and we highly dependent on our informer network and it's a highly information driven system and uh, we would then pre-deploy into an area where we know suspects will be penetrating and we will then um, wait in a in a rally point with the anti-poaching unit in order to then um, go out and find these guys as they're entering the reserve before they actually pull the trigger and before another rhino falls. That to us is the is the ideal situation. And uh, so it depends highly on, on the scenario uh, as to how we how we approach it. And when you are, you know, I don't know, are you getting that close to the to suspects and things like that? Are you actually getting shots taken at the helicopters? So far, we haven't, uh, at least not that we know of. If the guys have shot at us, uh, they've, they, they've <laughs> missed. <enough>. So, <laughs> um, the, the generally what happens is as soon as the helicopter arrives overhead, the suspects tend to go to ground because they know that as soon as they move, we, are, we, we will see them. So they tend to, to lie low, go into dense vegetation and try and remain out of sight. Um, we are at the moment busy investigating the use of uh, thermal imaging 
which we hope will allow us to be able to penetrate some of that vegetation and pick up the heat, sign heat signature, which uh, if that does work, will be a game changer for us as well. Um, as it stands at the moment, we will, if we know that guys are in a particular area, we would basically remain overhead at low level, suppress their movements and allow the, the ground crews uh, time to, to come into that area and then apprehend them. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the, like the actual animal itself just quickly because um, we're, sure. we're going on and uh, <laughs> getting a bit longer for everyone's <laughs> normal commute to work, which is no dramas. But sure, sure. Yeah, you know, tell me about a rhino because, you know, again, I've seen Discovery Channel or you know, documentaries, but that's it. But what's, you know, what's a rhino like? Well, in, in South Africa, we've got both black and white rhino. Um, we, and, you know, the white rhino is a much more docile animal. Black rhino, I love them because they wake up in the morning and they're really in a bad mood. Uh, they're like real street fighters. They're bad-tempered. They're very aggressive. They're fantastic animals. Um, white rhino, like I said, they're very, very docile. And this is a problem. It makes them very easy to, to stalk and to, and to approach. And uh, which makes them very soft targets for 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 poachers. Um, they are mega herbivores. They they consume lots of grass, and they're integral into the integrity of of the ecosystems. So if they are removed from the system, it will have a knock on effect and uh, lead to the detriment of the whole ecosystem. And they look pretty hardy beasts. It doesn't look like they fall over at the a touch of a feather. So when the poachers are actually trying to to, to kill, do they try and kill them to get the horn, or do they just sedate them? With uh, you know, like dark gun type things. So what's what actually happens to the animal? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're quite right. They 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 very big animals. I mean, a, a bull white rhino could be in excess of a thousand kilograms uh, of 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 meat. So it's a it's a big animal. Uh, the guys use generally use high caliber hunting rifles, uh, three five seven, uh, sorry three seven five or four five eight uh, hunting rifles. Um, we've only had a few occurrences where it appears that guys have come in uh, with with tranquilizers and, and actually dart the animals. This is a concern to us because it's it's got a much lower noise print, a, a dart gun versus a hunting rifle, um, which means that it gives them a, a stealth advantage as well. Um, also, just an interesting uh, point is that most of these big caliber hunting rifles, the guys are actually coming in with suppressors. So they, they're coming in with, with silences to try and uh, conceal their, their noise signature as well. So, yeah, it's definitely very organized then if they're bringing that type of equipment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sorry, just, just another, another point as well that we've picked up recently is not only the hunting rifles, but guys are starting to, to carry assault, assault rifles, AK-47s, and uh, handguns as well. Now, we know that that's not to shoot the animal for. That's that's to use against uh, us and the and the anti-poaching guys. So that uh, is also something that we always consider. Yeah, wow, you guys got a lot going on. Um, how did the rhinos? Sorry, how did the rhinos react to the helicopters? Are you able to herd them, or are they sort of uh, do they you know they, they buck up, or how, how does that work? Yeah, they they're relatively um, responsive to to helicopter movements. Uh, we ourselves, we're not allowed to, to herd them because that falls under the category of, of uh, game capture as soon as we start herding animals. Uh, we're not capture rated at the moment, but we are busy with our ratings and we will have that in place imminently. Now, um, the, the, the question of herding them away from, from areas, rhinos are very territorial. So even if you do herd them away, as soon as the helicopter leaves that area, they tend to move back into those original, those areas, their, 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 their home ranges. 
Um, so unfortunately, it has been tried, but uh, we can't uh, keep them away from from threat areas. It makes it just one more challenge you guys have got. Yeah. Uh, unmanned aircraft, have you started uh, are they using drones over there yet as far as the ground-based um, any poaching operations or the law enforcement go? Is that something that's coming into, into play? Mm, absolutely. We do have uh, – we've had a few few guys come out and, and, and do trial runs. Um, our, our concern for ourselves, uh, we basically got, got three main concerns. One is that, uh, unfortunately, in this country, uh, UAVs or commercial drones are not uh, permitted by our Civil Aviation Authority, so that kind of puts a, a damper on the development of that technology. Um, a lot of the technology is still very, very expensive, at least the, the type of technology that would be effective in our, in our operation. Um, essentially, we need uh, military-grade uh, technology for, for our targets and what we want to, to do. Um, and then from a more practical point, our problem is without the reaction capability, uh, a drone is, is limited in its use because unless you have the ability to follow up uh, identifying a target will only lead to a frustrated drone operator because you won't be necessarily be able to do anything about it. Um, and for that reason, we're busy working on a on a reaction force that is actually linked directly to the air wing and will be on standby here at our base to be deployed with the helicopters. Yeah, it becomes a very combined arms or combined forces operation. Correct. And Ian, we talked to you talked about the so both our forty fours are supplied under different contracts and are funded sort of through two different organisations there. And you mentioned mm. it's a bit convoluted as far as the different organisations that, that you work under. But what what's the operational funding? Is, is it all government or private based? Is it uh, donations? What's what's the breakup of funding? Yeah, it's I'd say it's about a fifty fifty split between government and private sector. Um, as, as mentioned before, the, the state is, is essentially providing the helicopter service. Uh, the private sector, in turn, have, uh, have put up um, the one fixed-wing aircraft with its running costs. The running costs of this base uh, that we operate out of as well is, is all borne by the private sector. Um, so there's lots of, of continual fundraising going on. Um, as you can imagine, this, this operation is, is quite a hungry one. Running uh, the machines, although although they're piston aircraft, they still they still come at a cost, and uh, so we're always trying to balance the books as much as what we can. So there's there's a, a team out there constantly doing uh, awareness and fundraising on our behalf. How can folks find out more about what you guys are doing? Sure, I think the easiest would be if they go to our, our website, which is www.zapwing. Uh, Zulu Alpha Papa Whiskey India November Golf dot org and uh, on the on the website there they'll find out the the, the entire history of the operation uh, how we all fit together as well as if people feel the need to to contribute to, or make a donation um, all of that information is available on the website and uh, there's a couple of videos there too so it's yeah, if, you, if you're listening to this you want to go check out a little bit what they're doing. There's some uh, good videos there. And if you've enjoyed listening to it and you want to, you know, donate the, the cost of a, a cup of coffee or a little bit more, then I'm sure every dollar would count for these guys. Are you looking for any more pilots at the moment? At the moment, Mick, no, we are not. Uh, we, we've we got adequate uh, air crew for the time being. And uh, we, we hope to expand in, in, in the future as things develop. Uh, but that's, that's still a ways off. So at the moment, uh, the short answer is no, we are not.
And are you guys off the beaten track as far as tourism goes? So if people are listening and they they find themselves in Africa on a on a game tour, uh, do they drive past the front of the airfield there, or do they actually have to go out of their way to come and say good day? Yeah, they they're more than welcome. Um, our base uh, is is in in our in our little Shishui town. It's like I said, everything is one minute away in Shishui. Uh, so if if they do come through, and we've got quite a few uh, bus groups and and tour groups that do move through the area, if anybody wants to pop in, um, more than welcome to do so. Bearing in mind that there are certain areas that are restricted, uh, and we might be involved in in sensitive operations, but uh, we always welcome people to come and and pay us a visit. Um, I think the best would be if anybody wants to do uh, come pay us a visit, just to drop me an email. Uh, which is etienne at zapwing.org. That's Echo Tango, India Echo, November, November Echo at zapwing.org. And uh, we'll be more than happy to set something up. Etienne, thank you. Look, that's so fascinating. And I'm sure we really just touched the, the tip of the iceberg there and things you're doing. But it sounds like you're very busy, but it's also a, you know, a job where you're really making a difference in, in what you're doing. No, cheers, Mark. Appreciate it. And thank you for, for the opportunity to to share with yourself and, and to your listeners. We really do appreciate the, the exposure. Fantastic. Okay. I'll uh, chat with you soon. Cheers. Cheers, Mark. There you go. Those guys are really working on uh, something different. And you can see a bunch of photos that Eddie Ann sent through and a, a video on the show notes for this episode. So that's episode six at rotarywingshow.com. If you're on social media, then please uh, consider sharing the episode link and get the word out there about what these guys are doing. As you probably picked up and gathered from the interview, their financing and funding is fairly developed, is dependent on government and public support. So the more the results and their work gets exposure, uh, the better for those guys. Who would you like to see interviewed in upcoming episodes. Drop a message on the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Rotary Wing Show or tweet me via at Rotary Wing Show and let me know. I've got a bunch of people I'm chatting with at the moment and it just comes down to time zones and schedules on when we can get those recorded. So some of the people that I'm looking for introductions to and try and tap your own networks there is I'm looking for an aviation fuel expert Someone that can talk about flying clothing and the types of fire-resistant cloth that are on the market at the moment, and also how to look after them and keep them in good condition because washing them with the rest of the family's clothes is probably not best practice. Also looking for someone who is flying or has flown the V-22 Ospreys because I reckon that's just an amazing machine to talk about. And I'm also looking for a HR or a recruiting person from one of the larger offshore employers to talk about pilot recruiting and how to best present yourself for your next job. So either social media or you can get hold of me on email, which is a feedback at rotarywingshow.com. Don't forget, you can also leave a voice message on the website. If you look on the right-hand sidebar, uh, you'll see the tool there. And I can play that on an upcoming show. So it could be feedback, it could be a question about the past episodes, or just a general helicopter question. Next episode, I'm not sure which one I'll be able to post first yet, but it will either be about helicopter underwater escape training or about EMS flying in Alaska. So both of those will be coming up in the near future. So thanks again. You've been listening to the Rotary Wing Show. I've been your host, Mick Cullen. 
Thoughts and opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and interviewees and don't reflect those of their employers. Till next time, fly safe.